Lord God, when we even just begin to consider what life without you is like, what life without your word would be like, Lord, we just think of lostness, we think of darkness, we think of being alone in this world. And so we confess, God, we'd be lost, we'd be lost without you. But God, we don't, we don't want to live without you. We don't want to try to go our own way without your presence, without your word. And so this morning, we humbly ask you, Lord, meet us here. Open up our hearts to see the wonder of what you've given us in, in your word, what you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ, what you've given us in your Holy Spirit that you've put in our hearts. Or we know that you've been the one sustaining us. You've been the one keeping us alive. You've been the one awakening our hearts to know you and love you. And today we just ask that you would continue that process in us, continue to wake us up, continue to keep us alive to the reality of who you are. We want to know you more deeply. We want to enjoy life fellowshipping with you. And Lord, we believe that as, as we turn out of your word, we believe what your, your, what your word says about itself, that it is breathed out by you, that it is inspired by you, that this is not something from man, this is not something that we made up, but this is something that came down from heaven to us. And so Lord, with that understanding, with that authority, with that gravity, we just humbly submit this morning. We ask that you would speak to us, and as you speak to us, God, draw our hearts to fully and completely submit to whatever it is that you have to say to us. God, soften our hearts that we might not think that we are wise in our own ways, but we might see that you are all wise, that you understand life, and that you're here this morning to shine your light into our dark world. God, we need you. We need you. And so we humbly submit to your word today. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. As you're taking your seats, uh, first of all, I want to just, uh, just dismiss our kids. If y'all want to head on out, you're free to go. Uh, if your kids haven't been checked in yet, they can still check in in the lobby. Um, and then for the rest of us, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 119. Open up your Bible to Psalm 119. Uh, in that last song that we were singing, uh, we, we, we used the word desperate. I'm desperate for you. Uh, when you think of desperation, when you think of longing, when you think of desiring, I wonder what comes to your mind. You know, to be, to be, uh, to be fixated on something, to be, to be locked in on something so single-mindedly that, that it's all you can think about, that it's all you're, you're going after, that it's all you want. Uh, there's a story in the Bible that, that, that kind of paints a picture for us of what longing looks like, what desire and desperation looks like. In Genesis chapter 29, uh, recounts the tragic but comical story of a young man named Jacob. Jacob was looking for a wife, and he found this beautiful young woman named Rachel. And if there was any story in, in, in the history of the world that ever described love at first sight, this would be a picture of love at first sight. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 11, it tells us what happened the first time Jacob met Rachel. It says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now, I'm not even really sure what to make of that. 
But it is obvious that he d- deeply, deeply, deeply wanted to be with this beautiful young woman that he has just met. So Jacob asks her father, uh, Laban, if, if he can marry her. And Laban's a, a wise man, a shrewd man. He can see how desperately this young man wants his daughter. And he says, sure, you can have my daughter. But first, you have to serve me for seven years. But this is what the Bible tells us in Genesis 29, 20. This is, guys, this is young love right here. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Isn't that precious? He was locked in. He desired her. He wanted her. This is what his whole life came to be about. But that's what makes this story both so tragic and so hilarious. Uh, Laban, again, is a, is a crafty man. He understands who he's dealing with here. And so the seven years are up. It seems time for Jacob to marry Laban's daughter. The wedding comes, but, but Laban sneaks his other daughter, Leah, into the bedchamber instead of Rachel on the night of the wedding. And so Jacob consummates the marriage, but there's only one problem. He consummates the marriage with the wrong girl. He consummates the marriage with her sister, Leah. And this is what I think is probably the funniest verse in all the Bible, Genesis 29, 25. It says, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It's as if the Bible is just as surprised as Jacob would have been to wake up and find that the the woman he longed for, the woman he desired, the woman who he was so fixated upon, he wakes up that next morning with no electricity, no lights, to find that it's her sister, and Laban's a crafty man. He's a sneaky man. And so he says, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll, I'll give you Rachel, but here's what we're going to do. You're going to serve me for seven more years. And so you know what Jacob did? He served Laban for seven more years. Guys, this is longing. This is desire. This is being so locked in, so focused on, on one thing, one person, that it consumes your whole life. It takes up everything about you. Now, I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure that I can totally relate to Jacob, but here's, here's what I can relate to about Jacob. I can relate to what it feels like to, de- to desire something so bad that it seems to just take over me, to, to long for something, to crave after something so bad that it's all I can think about, that everything else sort of slips into the background and I just get locked in on that, on that one thing that I so desperately desire. And the reason that we have longings, the reason that we have these cravings is because something inside of us is missing. There's a void, there's an emptiness there that, that, we're, that we're attempting to fill. And so here's the reality. It's almost just basic, a basic understanding of what it means to be human is to be living our lives desiring something, to be living our lives longing after something. That's what shapes our lives. That's what sets the direction and the course for, for much of how we live. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 119, uh, we've been... We decided to take eight weeks to, to, to slowly walk through it. And one of the main goals, one of the main reasons that Psalm 119 is, the Bible, is, is in the Bible is to teach us that true life, real life, is actually only found in the Bible. Psalm 119 is here to elicit longing, to elicit craving. Psalm 119 wants us to get hungry after the Word of God. God comes to us in this psalm and he shows us reason after reason after reason that we ought to be, just like Jacob was going after Rachel, we ought to be going after his word. That if we actually knew 
what we had in this Bible, if we actually knew the riches, the treasures that were in His Word, we would crave after it. We would long after it. We would become single-minded in our pursuit of what God has spoken. So this morning, we all need to just stop from the, from, from the outset here and just ask ourselves this question. Am I hungry for God's Word? Would I say about myself that I, I long for what God has said, that I crave after the Scriptures? As we work through uh, this section of Psalm 119 from verses 33 to 56, we're going to see three things that we should long for, that we should crave after, that we should seek, desire, related to the Word of God. First, this morning, first, we should long for God to work in us through His Word. We should long for God to work in us through His Word. As we read through the first stanza, I'm just going to start by reading verses 33 through 39. I want you to notice how the psalmist is pleading for God to work. He's pleading for God to do something, for God to be the actor in his life. So let's read 33 through 39. It says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. See, 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 he's crying out to God. He's longing for God to do something. Teach me. Give me understanding. Incline my heart. Turn my eyes. He's, he's asking God to do something for him that he cannot do for himself. The mistake that uh, many of us, I think, can make when we think about the Bible is to approach it in, in sort of a mechanical way. To think that if I interact with the Bible, if I read the Bible, if I study the Bible, then it will just automatically change me. But what we see in this psalm is that that's actually not true. That if he, in Ephesians chapter 6... The Apostle Paul calls the Bible, the Scriptures, the sword of the Spirit. Which means this Bible, it is a powerful sword. It is a powerful thing, but it, but it must be wielded in the correct hands. See, there are many people that have spent years and years and years reading the Bible, studying the Bible, around the Bible, but they are no more transformed by it than Satan himself. Consider that at a number, a number of points in, in the Bible, we see Satan himself quoting scripture, Satan himself interacting with the Bible. But what is he doing? He's using it for his own purposes rather than submitting to God's purposes. And sometimes you and I can do the same thing. Yeah, maybe we read the Bible. Yeah, maybe we come around. Maybe we study the Bible a little bit, but we're not actually interested in God transforming us. We're not actually interested in coming to the Bible and saying, God, make me into whatever you want me to be. We come to the Bible to use it. One of the ways, one of the saddest ways we do this is sometimes we take the Bible and we actually weaponize it uh, towards everybody else in our life while we remain cold and distant towards God. But there's other ways that we sometimes use the Bible as well. Verse 40, which ends this stanza, says, Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Do you see what he longs for? He's longing for God's word. He's longing for God 
to transform his heart. He's coming to the Word, hoping, longing, desperate for God to change him, for God to transform him, to incline his heart, to turn his eyes, to give him understanding. He knows that he is totally dependent upon God. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, when we come to the Bible, when we read it, when we approach it, when we walk in and we hear God's word preached, are we longing, are we desperate for God to change us? Are we desperate for God to transform us? Are we wanting to just feel better? Are we just wanting to have God fix our emotional issues? Are we actually interested in him totally changing our lives? See, what's wrong with our world and with us is clearly spelled out in verse 37. Verse 37 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. See, I I think most of us tend to think that what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with things around us, you know, all the terrible, rotten, dirty, evil people out there. You know, all the terrible, rotten, dirty people who do all those bad things. See, here's what, what this psalm is teaching us, is that actually to be outside of God's will, to be off track, all we have to do is to be focused on things that are worthless. All we have to do is all day long to just be gazing at things that have zero eternal value whatsoever. All day long, we just have to sort of just keep on going with the flow with things that are empty and meaningless. Uh, Growing up, one of my favorite uh, things to watch was the original Star Wars trilogy. Yes, I see some nods. For those of you who aren't nodding, just hang with me, okay? Uh, In in the first movie of the Star Star Wars trilogy, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, they go chasing after this, like, really tiny little spaceship, and they think they're going to get it. They they think they're going to take it down, and so they they follow after this thing. They're charging after it. The next thing they know, before they realize it, they are caught in the tractor beam of the Death Star. So, So at first, they were just going after a small little thing. They were just going after something that they thought they could handle, and then next thing they know, they are totally outmatched. And they're trying to get out of it. They're trying to turn to the left or right, but there's nothing they can do. And that's kind of how I envision us when it comes to looking at worthless things. That maybe, yeah, it seems to be harmless at first. You know, we start out with just, you know, this little meaningless thing over here, this little thing over here that's not a big deal, not going to affect us that much. But then, then next thing you know, we've become locked in. We've become sucked in. And we are way in over our heads. Don't get me wrong, I mean, it is totally our fault. Like, we're the ones who stepped into that mess to begin with, but now we have no way of getting ourselves out. Our eyes are consumed with what is empty, with what is meaningless, with what is worthless. And there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out. So what this psalm is teaching us in in Psalm 119.37 is that the only way, the only way for us to be transformed is if God turns our eyes away from these worthless things, and he gives us life according to his word. That we must get desperate for God to turn our eyes away from all those things in our life that are so empty, that are so meaningless, that sap our life away from us, that he might turn our eyes to things that are beautiful, that are glorious, that are eternal, found in his word. So I don't know what your deepest prayer is, for our world is, as you look around the world and, and you see 
what's wrong. Uh, I don't know what the deepest prayer for your own life is, what, what, what your deepest prayer for your own heart is, but it should be something like this. God, teach us your commands. God, give us understanding. God, incline our hearts to your testimonies. God, turn our eyes from worthless things and give us life in your ways. That ought to be the prayer we pray every day that we long, we desperately long for God to conform us to his word. And for just a minute, I just want to talk to our parents in the room. We've got a lot of parents here this morning. Lots of different ages. You know, what is your deepest desire for, for your kids? What is the deepest prayer in your heart for them? If you could sort of express your most sincere longings that you have for their life, what would it be? Maybe it ought to look something like this. God, teach them your way. God, give them understanding. God, incline their heart to your testimonies. God, turn their eyes from worthless things that they might find life in your ways. You know, I'm, not sure I could, I'm not sure I could sum up the temptation, the danger for a child in the 21st century any more clearly than that their eyes are set on worthless things. Constantly looking, staring, engaged, locked in, sucked in to that which is just totally meaningless, empty, worthless. So tonight, as we approach our VBS, we have VBS tonight, Vacation Bible School. We, we have lots of kids that are going to be coming here. And I just want to invite you, if you haven't already done, started to do this, I just want to invite us as a church to begin to pray for these kids that are coming here that every single child that steps onto this campus, that God would give them understanding, that God would teach them His ways, that God would incline their heart to His testimonies, that God would turn their eyes from worthless things, that they might walk in the life that's found in His ways. Let's commit as a church to pray uh, for our kids tonight as we approach VBS. So we should Long for God to work in us through His Word. Second this morning, we should long for God to grace us with His Word. We should long for God to grace us with His Word. I just want to start with verses 41 through 43. They say, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. There's something important I want to point out from, from this little section. It comes from the first, the first part of verse 41 and the first part of verse 43. So I just want to read those again. The first part of verse 41 says, Let your steadfast love come to me. In other words, there's something from God that must come into our lives. It must enter into our lives. But then notice how at the beginning of verse 43, he says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. So we need God to give us something, but there's also something that could be taken away. That we stand utterly in need of it to come into our life, but that once it's in our life, it's possible that God could then take it away. See, to have the word of God, to have the scriptures, to have this Bible, is actually a grace from God. It is not a human right. We are not entitled 
to God's word. It is not something that he owes us. And I know that's hard for for us to understand because for for most of us, we've grown up in a world where the Bible was always readily accessible. It was always there for us to have, to to read, to study. But let me tell you guys, that that hasn't always been the the case everywhere in the world and all throughout history. You know, do we forget? Do we do we maybe even never even knew, but do we forget that there were actually people who died so that we could have the Bible in the English language? You understand that? I mean, there were people who literally gave up their life so that the Bible could be read by common people who spoke the English language. And then all over the world today, there's there's still lots of people who don't have access to a Bible in their own language. It is not something we're entitled to. It is not a human right to have God speak to us. It is His grace in our lives. And so we cannot take it for granted. Beyond even just having access to the Bible, uh, there's more involved than, than just having the book. There's more involved than just having copies of the book, book laying around. Another way that the Bible, or another way that God's Word can be taken from us, can be taken utterly out of our mouths, is if God removes good, godly preachers from our midst. See, it's something we don't think about. Preachers are a gift of God to His church. People who read and explain and can expound and can apply and exhort God's people in His Word, that, that's a gift that God has given to His church. But just as it's a gift that He's given, it's a gift that He, he can take away. I say this with a utmost grief in my heart. I have a, a book in my office uh, called Dangerous Calling. It's written by a, a high-profile author, a high-profile publishing company. The, the book is about the dangers of being in pastoral ministry. It's about the dangers of, of being someone who uh, starts to rely on your own strength instead of God's strength. But the, the sadness, <laughs> the sadness, and I guess you would say the irony is that 10 years after that book has been published, about half of the dozen uh, high-profile pastors who endorsed that book have now fallen out of ministry because they're no longer qualified to be pastors and preachers. It's a sad day when it seems like preachers are being removed, when, it's, when we see people who are gifted with the Word, who are falling, to have God's Word and to have people who explain and expound God's Word, these are things that are gifts from God. Guys, we cannot stress enough the importance of not taking the Bible for granted. Do you want to know what hell on earth is? Hell on earth is life without the Bible. Hell on earth is us being left to our own ideas, intuitions, and best guesses. Hell on earth is to be living in this dark and hopeless world with no word from God about who He is, about who we are, about why He's made us, and most especially about how He saves sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. Hell on earth is life without the Bible. Uh, J.I. Packer, who uh, died in 2020, was an expert. He was a theologian, a churchman. He he was an expert on the Puritans. And he he writes about a story of a Puritan pastor who who began to preach to his people one morning about their neglect of the Bible. 
So this Puritan preacher begins to, to, to speak to his people about their neglect of the Bible. And the first thing that the, the Puritan preacher does is he begins to impersonate God to the people. And then he turns around and he begins to impersonate the people to God. This is how J.I. Packer tells the story. He writes, first he impersonates God to the people, telling them, Well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And this Puritan pastor picks up the Bible and begins to act like he's walking away with it. But then, immediately, he turns again and impersonates the people to God. He falls down on his knees. He cries and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatsoever thou cost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children. Burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible, only take not thy Bible away. It's that last response as he impersonates the people back to God that really strikes me. That if we knew what we had in this Bible, if we knew the treasure that we had in the Scriptures, there would be nothing, there would be nothing in this life that would be worth trading for it. So kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible, is not an overstatement. It is a very sobering statement. It is a very sobering thought. But it is not an overstatement. Hell on earth is life without a word from God. We're taking these eight weeks and we're slowly walking through Psalm 119. Why? Why are we taking eight whole weeks on one psalm? Well, yes, it is long, but, but more importantly, for eight weeks, we are resolutely staying on one topic, and that is God's Word to us. Because we don't want to be a church that ever takes God's Word for granted. We know how important this is. We know that this is life and death. And so we want to love it, cherish it, long for it, crave it. I, I'm praying in my own life that over these next few weeks, I will come to hunger and crave and long for God's word with a new depth. And man, I am praying for our church that we might be able to look back six months from now or a year from now or two years from now and we will remember. Remember when we went through Psalm 119 and it changed us forever. We never took God's word for granted again. We, we really did truly, as we were singing about earlier, we saw his word as our daily bread that just as much as we care about eating, we cared even more about living our lives, ingesting this word from God. Uh, if you're somebody who's maybe looking for, hey, I I'm open to that, where do I start? Uh, just this week, our women are starting a six-week Bible study with two different time options. A, a Tuesday and a Wednesday, two different time options. Uh, here at this church, we offer coaching where we'll, we'll teach you how to read the Bible. We'll come alongside of you, we'll sit down across the table, and we'll actually show you how to read God's Word and understand it for yourself. Uh, we have small groups that meet throughout the week, and when they gather, yes, they, they meet for community, they pray with one another, we have fun together, bowling, top golf, that kind of stuff. But what we're mostly about is studying the Bible together. Uh, every other month, we have Sunday seminars where we're diving deeper into God's Word. And if you're somebody, I don't know, who just has a really weird schedule, or maybe you're the kind of person that's like, you know, I just don't like the, 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 the non-organic stuff. You know, I'm an organic kind of person. L listen, just find someone in this church who you halfway enjoy spending time with and just ask them to read the Bible with you. I can count on, like, two, hand, two fingers the amount of times I've asked someone to read the Bible with me, and they've said, no, I'm good. Just try it. 
Find somebody and say, look, I don't know what I'm doing. Would you read the Bible with me? I have a strong feeling they'd say yes. Now, I use the word grace uh, in this point uh, as a double meaning. See, it is a grace. It is grace that we even have this Bible at all. It is a grace that God has spoken to us and that we, in our time and place, actually have it accessible to us. But it is also the message of grace that God proclaims to us in his word. Look, look at verse 41 again. Verse 41 says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Uh, we, we can see God's power in creation. Right? We go out to the ocean, we go to the mountains, we can see God's power in creation. We can see God's wisdom in things like the eyeball. I mean, the way it's just meticulously put together and it's just so intricate. I mean, we can see God's wisdom in that. We can see God's justice in the fact that you and I and people all over the world who don't even know about God, we're constantly accusing ourselves and defending ourselves. We, we feel the need to put up a defense all the time. Why? Because His justice is written upon our hearts. So, so there's these things that are just in nature that, 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 that teach us about who God is, His power, His wisdom, His justice. That they're obvious, they're seen, they're known. But what isn't obvious, what can't be seen in nature, what can't be found out in the world is God's message of salvation. It's his heart of love for sinners. That is only found in one place. That is only found in his word. And when we are met with God's word, his true word, not his natural revelation, not what can be seen out there, but when, when God meets us with his scripture, with his Bible, it comes to us in a pattern. First, it comes to us as law. We read it and it convicts us. We read it and we see that we're guilty. We read it and we see that we fall very short of God's standard. But then, but then God meets us with his gospel, with his good news. And he shows us that, yes, we don't measure up to his standard. Yes, we have fallen so far short. And yet his love sent his son Jesus into this world to live a perfect life, to die on a cross and rise from the dead. Why? What is Jesus doing? Why does he come down? Why does he live? Why does he die? Why does he rise? So that guilty sinners like us who place our faith in him can be now righteous before God. That people like us who deserve to be condemned because of God's law can now be brought into the family, have the perfection of Jesus given to us as a gift. But see, then what happens next is after the law convicts us and that drives us to Jesus, then we receive the righteousness of Jesus and it drives us back to the law. But having placed our faith in Jesus, it totally transforms our relationship to the law. And that's exactly what we see in this psalm. Look at verses 44 through 48. What kind of person can talk like this about the law? He says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever and I shall walk in a wide place. Notice he doesn't say, Give me your law. I want your law because it's so narrow and constricting. It's so suffocating to me. No, 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 no. He says your law is a wide place. Your law is freedom. To have your law is life. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. What kind of person can say, I love your law? 
I delight in your commandments. That when I have your law, that is freedom to me. That is a wide place to me. What kind of person can say that? A person who is no longer under the condemnation of the law. A person who has found their righteousness in Jesus Christ. A person who's admitted, I'm not perfect. I can't measure up to God's standard. But there is one who stands in my place. And he is perfect. He is my righteousness. He is my perfect record before God. And so now I can love the law. I can cherish the law. I can delight in the law because it does not stand in judgment over me anymore. It does not condemn me anymore. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor that there was a lot of students who, who wanted to, to get to know this one professor. He was a, he was a godly man. He, he was filled with lots of wisdom, lots of experience. And so uh, he was highly sought after, but, but he was the one problem. While he was happy to mentor students and disciple them and, and help them along with uh, his experience in life wisdom, he also served as the dean of students. And so he would also tell any prospective mentee who came into his office, was looking for guidance, was looking to be discipled, he would say, look, I'm happy to give you my wisdom. I am happy to show you my experience. But if you confess something to me that breaks our school's uh, code of conduct, I will, in that instance, treat you as the dean of students. That as long as you're a student here, you're under my jurisdiction as the dean. And so if you confess something that's against the rules, then I will have to prosecute you. I will have to carry out the correct punishment. And see, that is our initial relationship to the law. When we first start to read the Bible and we see the law, it condemns us. It shows us how we're guilty. And when we live under its judgment, it will prosecute us. It will condemn us. But then it, it drives us to Jesus and we just fall into his arms. We realize I could never measure up. I could never do enough. I could never pay God back for all the guilty things that I've done. And so we fall into the arms of Jesus. And see, if my professor were to have somebody who would come to him and say, hey, will you be my mentor? But they, they weren't a student. They're not under his jurisdiction as the dean. They could enjoy his wisdom. They could learn from him. They could understand his wisdom and guidance without the fear of being expelled. And that is now the Christian's relationship to the law. We come to it seeing that it is good, seeing that it is wise, seeing that it shows us exactly how God wants us to live, and we don't have to live in fear that it's going to condemn us. We don't have to live in fear that it's going to prosecute us because our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And so the Bible gives us a law first that, that convicts us, but then it leads us to the gospel. But then we, after we experience the gospel, we can become like this psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, I love your law. I delight in your commandments. And that leads us finally this morning to our third and final point, that we should long for God to bless us through his word. We should long for God to bless us through his word. Start just with verses 49 through 52. It says, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. One way that God blesses us through his word 
is by giving us his promises. Uh, Next week, our plan is to spend the whole week talking about the value of God's word in the midst of affliction, in the midst of our trouble. But for just this morning, verse 50 is just too precious to pass by. Verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. See, this world is full. This world is full of attempts to try to give us comfort in our affliction. This world is full of promises that are totally empty. They cannot give us life. Can alcohol give us life in the midst of our affliction? Can going out and buying more and more and more and more stuff actually give us life in the midst of our affliction? Can our favorite team winning the game honestly give us life in the midst of affliction? No, they they might promise to give us life. They might appear at first to give us life. But this world is full of empty promises. But the psalmist says, this, this, this is my comfort in my affliction. That your promises, they give life. Why? Because God's promises are sure. God's promises will not disappoint us. When God tells us that he's with us, when God tells us that he'll never forsake us, when God tells us that he has a plan for our life, when God tells us that he will bring us home safely to glory, these are promises that give us hope. And hope, real hope, concrete hope, hope that won't disappoint, is of immeasurable value in this hopeless world. Now, now I'm going to be honest. I think that's something that we might expect the Bible to say, right? Like, of course, God's promises give us comfort. Of course, there are promises in the Bible that give us comfort in our time of affliction. But what we wouldn't expect, here's what catches us off guard. It's verse 52. That it's not just the promises of God that give us comfort. Verse 52 says, When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Huh. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Now, that's an interesting thought. How do we find comfort in God's rules from of old? Well, consider the fact that we live in a day where the standard changes every five minutes. That we live in a time where the rules about what's right and what's wrong is changing so fast that no one can even keep up with it. Guys, there's actually something really scary about that. There's something really scary about rules changing so fast, about right and wrong being moved so quickly. There's something terrifying about it because on one minute, one second, you might be on the right side of that, but as fast as you are on the right side of it, you might be on the wrong side of it. No, it's terrifying to play the game of life with rules that constantly change. There's something really comforting about knowing that God's law, God's commands, God's rules, they flow out of his eternal heart. 
that if we align ourselves to His standard, His commands, His law, we know for sure that we are aligning ourselves to that which has always and will always give us life. That is the the winds of time changes, as the trends change, as things come and go, we know what God expects of us. We don't have to wonder what God wants from our lives. We don't have to wonder that maybe next week we'll have to shift and change and become something else. No, 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 no. Your rules from of old, your rules from eternity, they are a comfort to us. Because as they begin to take over our heart, we actually find freedom. We find life in them. And that's what opens up these last uh, few verses for today, verses 55, uh, excuse me, 53 through 56. <clears throat> 53 through 56 paint a contrast for us. It says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. So there's a contrast here. The psalmist is looking at the world around them, and he's saying, look, the, the world around me does not follow God's law. They forsake God's law. My heart is breaking. I am being filled with, with anger because nobody else around me sees the joy, the benefit, the blessing of God's law. And everybody else is forsaking His law. But then it creates the contrast to verse 56. Guys, verse 56 is astounding. This is astounding. It says, This blessing has fallen to me. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Think about what that's really saying. He's not saying, This blessing has fallen to me that I have your precepts. You know, this is a great blessing. I have your law, I have your commands. He says, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. What's he saying? He's saying that our obedience to God's commands is a grace from God to us. This is a person who understands, I had turned away from God's law. I thought that it was better to live according to my wisdom than yours. I thought that life would be found if I rebelled against God. And so I turned away from God. I tried to make it on my own. And God had every right to leave me there. He had every right to leave me in my foolishness. He had every right to say, that's what you want, enjoy it. But this psalmist looks and he sees a God who has reached into his heart and transformed him. He is seen and experienced a God who has inclined his heart to his testimonies, who has turned his eyes from worthless things that he might find life in his ways. And he says, God, this is a blessing, not just that I have your law, but that you've actually empowered me to obey your law, that it is a blessing to be conformed to God's word. It is a blessing to no longer be a slave to the sinful, foolish life, but for God to Bring us into the dignity, the honor of being the children of God. Here's a way to think about the blessing of obedience. I want you to imagine two different children that grow up in two different houses. 
Uh, here, here's one child, and this child's parents are gentle but, but firm in consistently teaching the child to be kind to others, to respect others, to be honest and to not tell lies to other people, and to, to think about how their actions affect everybody around them before they go through. And, they, and they're, they're firm, but they're gentle. They're, they're loving, but they're consistent. They're regularly teaching this child to conform to a certain pattern. And then you've got another child who grows up in a, a different kind of house where the parents really could care less. They're, they're not interested in investing the time and energy into their child. In fact, they even teach their child that if it gets them ahead in life, that they should just tell lies every once in a while. That they teach their child that the most important thing in life is actually to express yourself, and it doesn't matter who you hurt, it doesn't matter what kind of ramifications come from it, that you are the center of the universe. And not only do they teach their child that, but they model it for them. Now, wouldn't we say, if we looked at these two children, that one of these would be a great blessing, and the other would be a serious curse? That to have the discipline, the guidance, the instruction, the forming to be led into a life that's humane, that's dignifying, that spreads life rather than sucks life, wouldn't we say that would be a blessing? Well, what this psalmist is doing, he's looking at his own life and he's saying, if it was up to me, I would have chosen to just be a rebel. I would have chosen to live in my foolishness. I would have chosen to just keep on going in my crazy. But God showed up in my life. God transformed my heart. God rescued me. And now this blessing has fallen upon me that I have kept your precepts. That I, I get to live according to your word. That I'm not a slave to my sin anymore, but now I can be obedient to you from the heart. And this is how Psalm 119, it's enticing us to long for God's word, to long for the blessing, yes, the blessing of obedience. At this time, I want to invite you to take out your communion elements that you should have there uh, in your seat. And uh, I just want to say, as you take those out, um, this communion, the Lord's Supper, is a meal that God's people share together. Um, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not someone who would say you've placed your faith in Jesus, um, these elements are actually not for you. Uh, the, these elements are for the family of God. But what I want to do this morning is actually, I want to offer you something better. See, see, this bread and this cup, it's just a symbol. It's just a picture. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe God, through his word this morning, he's convicted your heart. He's shown you that you fall short of his standard. But what I'm offering you right now, better than this, better than this cracker and this juice, better than this is the actual real Jesus Christ. That Jesus opens up his arms and says, I know you fall short. I know you don't have a righteousness of your own, but I am happy to give you mine. That if you'll put your trust in me, if you'll follow me, if you will come up underneath my lordship, 
the judgment that hangs over your life, I'll remove it. And so this morning, you, you may not be ready. You may, may not be at the place where you can take these, but you can take the real thing. You can take Jesus himself. And I invite you right now to place your faith in our Savior. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, this bread and this cup remind us that God has saved sinners, that God sent his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life that you and I could and to die on the cross to take our punishment and to rise from the dead triumphantly. And what we experience, what we get from Jesus Christ is freedom. In Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. When we look at this bread and we look at this cup, we are reminded that we were bought with a price. That Jesus Christ laid down his life so that you and I would no longer have to be slaves to our sin anymore. But that we could actually be conformed to his word, obedient from the heart. That we could step into the dignity of being the children of God. And so this morning... First, we look at the bread and we remember the body of Jesus broken for us. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And then we look at the cup and we remember the blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for the forgiveness of many. Take it and drink it in remembrance of him. God, this morning, we pray that you would create in us a longing for your word, create in us a hunger for knowing you. God, stir in us to be the kind of people who see that Jesus has bought us with a price, who see obedience, who see conforming to your word as a privilege. God, our hearts are so wired against that. We're so wired to see rules and laws and commands as constricting. But Lord, help us this morning to see the freedom, to see the, the wide pastures that are walking in your ways. Lord, bring us to the point where daily the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we are set free from the law, would then drive us to want to uphold the law, would drive us to see the wisdom and the goodness of the law. God, would you work powerfully in us inclining our hearts to your testimonies. Lord, our prayer, our prayer for us this morning, for our kids tonight, for our world, Lord, turn our eyes from worthless things and give us life in your ways. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.